Those who are never at fault in what they say are perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider the great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by people, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who are wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from, spirit, from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Stepping back in time, isn't it, with um, Iggy and Ben and Susie and others all kind of here again. It's great to have them back uh, as well as sharing others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us, and we pray that today the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Um, Richard, I wonder whether we could put up the first few verses. Oh, sorry. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And then if you could just kind of, as I go through, if, if you think I'm going on to the next bit, just flip it up, because I won't look at it there, but it would be helpful to have that. Ah, I'm still a bit discombobulated. I've just literally cycled up from Quakers Road, and I was hoping I had a few more minutes to get myself settled uh, and do that. Last week, while uh, you were all living it up at Sea in the Park, actually, no, most of the people at that time were kind of working hard on setting it up. I was at Quakers Road. So I got the joy of uh, preaching on James chapter 2, and you've kind of missed out on it. So this morning you're going to have two sermons, one on James 2 and one on James 3. No, you're not. (laughs) I can see some of you getting excited and some of you getting very worried. But just to kind of fill you in a little bit, James chapter 2, if you were to read it, is all about this kind of conundrum about the relationship between faith and works. Which is more important? Is it what I believe 
or is it what I do? And uh, James is saying there are some people who claim to have faith but no works and others who claim to have works uh, and, 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 fa- and no faith. And uh, that they'll show their faith by doing it. And he said, well, actually, the bottom line is we need both. There has to be kind of integrity between our faith and our works. The logical fruit, oh, it's normally there, but it's not the banner which says fruitfulness. The logical fruit of faith is works. And that if you have a faith and it doesn't uh, result in transformed lives, then it's kind of dead. It's not making any difference. And uh, so he's kind of really kind of focusing on that relationship between faith and deeds. And he, he cites a couple of people, and it's really interesting. He cites Abraham. Yeah, that's kind of good. He's one of the heroes of the Bible and so on. But he also cites Rahab, who was a prostitute, as one of the heroes of faith. Kind of unexpected, really, isn't it? We wouldn't normally anticipate that. But here is somebody who, by her faith and her actions, was commanded by God. The two things coming together. And now in uh, this chapter uh, 3, before he returns at the end of it to that relationship between faith and works, James turns our attention to uh, our words. So we've had faith and works, and now faith and words. And James was uh, very close to Jesus, and much of the words that he writes are based on the words of Jesus themselves. And so behind these first uh, few verses, not many of you should presume to be teachers, or I'll come a little bit later uh, in doing that, behind these words about the tongue and, uh, and the damage that it can do in others, is very much the thinking of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 11, where Jesus says it's what comes out of a man, out of his mouth, that defiles him, that makes him unclean. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. It's the words that you hear because it's revealing what is going on in there. And in verse 1 here, Jesus says not, or James says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And I love the fact that he says in that point, we all stumble in many ways. It's kind of not like he's saying you've got to be perfect. He's not even saying that teachers have got to be perfect. We all stumble, including the great James. That's kind of relief, isn't it? That if James can stumble and make mistakes and miss the mark, it's okay that we do too. But there is this kind of warning. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you will be judged more uh, more strictly. And I was kind of reflecting on it. I don't know if you guys, anybody who's been uh, on Facebook or Twitter or The Guardian in this last week. Uh, If you are, you may have come across Ordination Picture Gate. Anybody familiar with that story? Thanks, Miriam. That's great. Ordination Picturegate is a, is a big discussion that's been going on uh, on, on the social media because uh, somebody in Wales, a young curate who was about to be ordained again, made a comment about the fact this trend amongst people who are being ordained as deacons and uh, clergy, they're not taking it seriously enough. And they're having these photographs where they're so full of joy, they jump up in the air and go, yay! And then it snaps with all these cassocks flying and people in the air looking like they're having fun. And it really, really does not, according to Sky, uh, fit the mould. It's not appropriate. That in itself is neither here nor there. That's, that's the debate that's going on. What was interesting is that a friend of mine uh, said, I know the person who's weighing on the debate and who's, who's making a lot of these things. And the irony is that he was the one who started it in Bristol that it was him who encouraged them to do that. And he said, 
Why is it that he's not acknowledging that and saying, I started this? He's just coming in, weighing in on that thing, saying how terrible it is. And again, I'm not even making judgment on hypocrisy. What I want you to notice there is that people noticed. He is a leader, and there is an inconsistency between what he's said and done in the past and what he's saying and doing now, and he's not acknowledging it. And people noticed. Leaders are watched and scrutinized. One of the great uh, tragedies and sadnesses over the last year for many of us in this diocese, and particularly for Bishop Mike, was um, many of us have been to GLS, the Global Leadership Summit, and at the last Global Leadership Summit, Bill Hybels, who's uh, been a major international world Christian leader, announced that he was retiring because he felt he needed to hand on to others. That's fine, we were all thinking that's great, what a great man, he's stepping down and doing that. A few weeks later, accusations from quite prominent women came about his inappropriate behaviour towards them. Now again, I don't want to make any judgments because I don't know the truth of that. But here is another man in senior leadership whose life is under a microscope. And people are watching every move and thing that he's saying, trying to work out whether there is integrity between what he says and what he believes. So those who set themselves up to teach walk a very, very vulnerable path. So I'd really like to ask you to pray for Joe and for Paul and for me and for those who teach and lead in Bible studies and others because actually they're in a vulnerable position. Partly because if we tell them how great they are, we might believe it and start acting kind of out of the top. Or, but also, if we make any mistakes, sometimes people jump on us, and, and, and you, it's really hard. But actually, we need that humility and wisdom that James is talking about, that we don't uh, come into this uh, thing believing that we are good, but actually we have this awareness, and the leaders have this awareness, that we all stumble, we're all capable of making a mistake. And then uh, James goes on from there to say that if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect person, able to keep their whole body in check. That's quite a remarkable thing, really. It's as almost though he's saying that there is something about if you are able to keep your tongue under control, not just your whole body, but like your whole life, your whole being, all you are will also be under control. And that people who learn to control their tongue are less likely to live disordered and chaotic lives. Now, I'm not saying which is uh, cause and effect or correlation, but what James is saying, if you observe, those who are able to control their tongue, more often than not, their lives are also in order. That there is a relationship between what we say and what we become and what we are and what we say. And that's kind of important to note. Because we've already seen that we can't actually do that on our own. We need that humility and we all made mistakes. And then James goes on to highlight the particular power and responsibility of words. Now we know that the word in the Bible is, has particular power and resonance. The very beginning of the Bible, the word was with God and the word was God. Or well, the word was God and the word was with God. And the word was spoken and all the created order came into being. And it is sustained through the word Jesus Christ. And so words have enormous creative 
power. And so James says, you know, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them best, we can turn the whole animal. Or take a ship as an example, and he gives a ship of the tiny, tiny rudder that's taking this huge uh, ship in a direction. And notice there the important thing is this is about direction. This is about where we're going to go in our lives or in what's going on and in the church. And words can have a huge impact on the direction that our lives go. And our tongue is the thing that enables them to come out. And so it's a kind of a positive thing. And, and, and we need to celebrate that, that words have this enormous power. A word in season can utterly transform someone's life. I can think of occasions probably in my own life and others where somebody has spoken a word in season. And that word has transformed a life for good. I was thinking this morning at, uh, at nine o'clock and, uh, of Martin Luther King. And those words, I have a dream. Three words. We all know what they mean. We all know that context. I have a dream, a dream of a different society, a place where it doesn't matter whether you're black or white, male or female, where all are equal before God, where there is justice for all. I have a dream. And those words change the direction of nations and of people. And James talks about how we can boast of the tongue, and the tongue can boast of things. It's not a negative thing in that point. It's actually a positive thing. It's saying that this, the tongue has enormous creative potential. And when it's used in the right way, it can achieve huge and amazing things. And so we celebrate that. And so we know that how we use our words on a smaller scale can affect things. I don't want my children to listen to this because they'll know all my mistakes. They know where I stumble and fail. But in my head, in my head, I know that children as they grow up, if they're surrounded by lots of positive and loving words and no criticism, that's one of my faults, by the way, a critical spirit. I'm sorry, kids, but that's what you've had to deal with. But when they grow up surrounded by positive, encouraging words, it can give young people a stability and an assurance and a confidence. And we know too that children who are, grow up in a place of total neglect and rejection, often that damage goes through the rest of their life. And so words that we speak to people can have huge uh, positive effects for people. Truthful words sometimes, they're the hardest to speak sometimes, but they can save us from catastrophic effects. So this tongue, if we can control it, is an enormously powerful gift from God. But just as a spark can set forward a fire like that of Martin Luther King, we also know that it can be negative. That the tongue, when it can be out of control, is like a fire that is, has lost control. I almost don't need to say this, but you all know the pictures of Saddleworth Moor and Win Winter Hill. And the huge cost and damage and fear and so on that's going on and the fact that you can see the smoke from these fires from space in doing that and the impact it's having on people's lives, they were probably started by a single spark or a single match or a strike of lightning. Uh, they think the Winter Hill one was uh, started by somebody deliberately. 
Fires can be set deliberately and they can cause untold damage. Do you know, I just think of um, somebody that um, I uh, knew and was uh, dealing when I was preaching. And uh, I was at a school in, uh, called West Heath School. And uh, it was a cipher house party that I was a leader, as Paul is, at Hazelmere. And we had a reunion, and uh, everybody had been out shopping for the day. Out. You know, it was great, it was around Christmas and the pre-Christmas sales. And one of the girls had come back, she got herself a really nice jacket. And uh, she got it in sales, she was really pleased with it and telling everybody about it. And I was preaching, and I can't remember what I was preaching on, but I made a comment in the sermon about her jacket. And I made it kind of in the context of materialism, you know, and doing that, oh, and there's so-and-so who's been to do an example of that. I just thought it was a light-hearted comment. I meant nothing by it. I thought everyone's going to laugh. You know how she heard it. You know she felt judged. You know she walked out of that place feeling demeaned and humiliated and all those kind of stuff. Unfortunately, she came and told me. And I was at least able to put it right. But I don't think my relationship with her was ever really right again. And you know, that wasn't even on my script I didn't mean to say that. I hadn't planned to say it. It just popped into my head and out of my tongue before I could control it. Those inadvertent things. How often do we think, oh, Lord, if only I hadn't said that. And worse than that, I've said that, I've done that how many times? You'd have thought I would have learned by now. But now I keep on letting slip, saying those things. It's kind of like, almost like what's going on in your brain, which should be filtered, is not being filtered. And out it comes. Or for my own life, uh, I went interrailing, uh, and uh, a salutary warning. I don't know whether Susie is going interrailing with some friends. I went interrailing. It didn't work very well with this particular person I was with. Uh, I won't tell you what happened, but as we were coming back, we didn't get on very well. We arrived in Paris Station, and that, the person I was with turned around, and he said two words to me. Two words to me that ripped my life apart. He didn't know it. He was just angry, and he said those two words. And my entire being crumpled into worthlessness. I praise God that God picked those up and put me in the right place to actually bring about a deeper healing. But those two words utterly, utterly destroyed me. It's so difficult to control our tongue. The story of um, a woman who was walking along a road and uh, she uh, saw a poisonous snake. And uh, she picked up this poison snake because it was injured and it was uh, really next to death. And she took it home and she nursed it uh, to life. And um, after she brought it into home and it lived there for a while, it bit her two children and killed them. And she turned around to the snake and said, why did you bite my children? She said, well, you brought, he said, you brought me into your life. You knew that I was a snake. You knew that that was in my nature. And that is what I have done. It's your fault. Now, you might be thinking, I'm going to say the tongue is a bit like that snake that we welcome in and we don't control it. But actually, that story, I've heard it from his own lips, is told by Donald Trump. And his conclusion at the end is, that's how I like to think about immigrants. And he repeats that at the rallies that don't go through there. Do you see how words are being used deliberately to incite violence and distrust and hatred? And it's no wonder that James says, listen up. The tongue is like a poison. It can be like a poison. 
It can be like the fire of hell that comes through and destroys us. He is saying, in effect, this is really, 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 really important. What we do with our tongue and what we say really matters because it can be for good or for really deep, deep illness and, and harm. And then comes this really encouraging warning that uh, controlling our tongue is uh, not easy. In fact, it's easier to tame wild animals than it is to tame our tongue. And at this point, you're kind of thinking, I want to go home. I've had enough of this. Chris, you've given me a kind of useless thing that I can never, ever do. And you know, sometimes we just have to acknowledge the truth. I have to put my hand up and say, I don't always control my tongue. And the number of times that I have um, ended up bitterly regretting the things that I've said, and I always vow to myself that I will never do it again. I can remember sitting in a restaurant in Harare. I was with a friend. Uh, we both had uh, a lot of angst about the current bishop of Harare at the time and the decisions that he was making, and we were talking about our frustrations. And at the end of that time, a guy at the next table came and said, thank you not for your very unedifying conversation. <gasps> I tell you. It went right down. He'd been listening in on everything. And I thought, I'm never going to talk. Have, have I, do I not sometimes talk about things that are on my mind? And of course I do. And every time I come back, Lord, please, please, please help me not to do these stupid things. And it keeps coming out. And it's, that's the place to start. I can't control my tongue. Not on my own. But there's this wonderful verse that comes in Romans 8. You've just had the end of Romans 7. If you haven't read it, read it, Romans 7. And Paul is saying, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And why do the things that I want to do, I don't do them? And who's going to rescue me from this body of death? It's terrible. But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For he has rescued me from this body of sin. This body of death. Isn't that wonderful? That actually it is in that power of the Holy Spirit that we can begin to do that. In surrendering our lives to God, in surrendering our lives to the Holy Spirit, we can begin to bring our tongue under his control. And to see it used for good, for building people up. A few of you may have been on social media. Just a few of you, Facebook, Twitter, those kind of things. I know not many of you do because it is a terrible place to be. But actually it is a terrible place to be. Because that fire of sometimes in people's remarks, even on Christian threads, the way in which people use language to demean others, to humiliate them, to put them down, all those kind of things, it is horrible. But actually, if you think about it, it's a real opportunity for those who bring their life before God and seek his Holy Spirit to come under that, to use words that are salted, words that are words of life and encouragement and build up, to be different, to say those words and to write those words that can change the tenor of those things and those conversations and to point people to Christ into a different way. What a great opportunity if we can bring that tongue under control. And the secret is, as we keep coming back, is always starting from that point where we recognize that we are not worthy. That it is by grace alone. That humility that James mentions and that uh, Joe so helpfully picked up for us earlier that we don't come into this dependent on our own strength and our own lives but solely upon God and I know how much I need that and in that place where we recognize that all we are coming from we ask him Lord will you 
change me and help me to do things. And each day, if we can, to keep on reminding ourselves that our strength and our grace is not dependent on what we do, but on others. And I just want to remind, uh, tell you a story of a lady called Joan, whom uh, I had yesterday. Um, we, some of us are going to Uganda with some kids, uh, uh, kids, young people from urban priority areas. That's another story, by the way. God has been amazing in blessing us with the gifts, the money to enable that trip to go ahead. It's unbelievable how God has done that. But we had an orientation day, and Joan came in, and Joan was part of the East African revival. She went out to Uganda in 1953 as a young woman, and she arrived in Kabali Primary School, and she was the head teacher or the deputy head teacher of the school. And she had a very trusted position sent by, I think it was CMS. She received all the money from the mission, and she doled it out to pay the salaries and to do all the kind of things that were going on there. And I've read her story, and this is where it comes from. She wrote it out in a, in a book. Joan was a young woman, and she liked pretty things. She really liked lovely dresses. She liked some comforts. And she had all this money that was coming from England, and only she knew how much there was. And so she diverted some of that money to buy dresses, to buy comforts, to make her life better. And all around all these people going on these kind of revival conventions and having an amazing, you know, doing, saying, it's amazing what God is doing. And it was incredible how God was transforming people. Joan didn't want to go to those. And she was really unhappy. And eventually someone persuaded her and she went uh, to one of these revival meetings of, of prayer. She said, how about the Holy Spirit came upon her? And the Holy Spirit came upon her and said, Joan, you will never be happy. You will never be able to grow while you are stealing. You have to put it right. And she went back and she had to confess publicly before all the teachers that she'd been stealing money from and the children that she'd been stealing money from, that she'd been stealing from them. This mission partner come from England to teach about God. And she wrote back to the mission agency and she wrote and said, this is what I've done. And she fully expected to be recalled. The mission agency wrote back and said, in effect, good, now you can start properly. The first time you're in the right place and God can use you. And she stood there at age 88, and she'd been uh, walking that walk of repentance and faith for 55 years. And she said, every day I read my Bible, I wish I could be like that. She said, every day I read my Bible and it reminds me that I have to keep coming back in repentance for all that I have done wrong and to receive his grace afresh and to walk with him. To bring my life under his control. Now, if you met Joan Hall, you would think, what an amazing lady. You would think there is nothing wrong in this lady. She's so full of grace and love. Any opportunity she will speak to you about Jesus and his love and how he cares for you, she will do, she'll open a home to you. She'll do everything special for you. She's a lovely, lovely lady. But she said, I come to this place every day and recognize it is not of me. Who I am is that person who is stealing from the poor and the needy. But God has set me free. And every day I bring those things to him and every day he releases me and every day I rejoice and serve him. And there's a lady who's got her tongue under control. There's a lady who's got her life under control because she's brought everything into the power of the Holy Spirit. I can only aspire. I can't, do, you know that, do you remember that thing? Be more cat? I kind of think we ought to be, be more Joan. Let's be like Joan. Let's be people who aspire, who look to say to God, I want my words and my deeds and my life to reflect you. And I know that the only way I can do that is by the equipping of your spirit and in gratitude for your love 
to me. Because it's all about grace. It's all about faith. And it results in works and transformation and hope and growth. And you know, we really need to capture that courage because we live in a world where there are difficult issues and complex issues and injustices that are happening and people are not addressing it. We are not talking about them. We are not standing up by and large to, to deal with them. I think God wants us. I think James would say to us, bring your tongue under control, bring it under the power of God and then with wisdom and humility let's hold on to that truth and proclaim it. Let's challenge injustice. Let's look for those things that flourish and grow wherever we may be. Because bottom line, it doesn't matter what I say in here. It doesn't matter really how much we praise God, as James says. How can it be that the same words that praise God can then go and curse somebody else? And cursing actually is leaving a negative imprint on people's lives. We talked about it when that, that guy spoke to me at the station. He cursed me. He didn't think of it like that, but his words had a curse on me. And how can a voice that is saying one thing to God and doing another? So let's pray that as we go from this place, we won't be like that spring that gives sweet water one moment and bitter the other, but that we can bless people and be more Jane. Amen.